Listener Production. Shares. Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday mailbag edition. It is always Sunday. It will always be special. And no, I'm not sorry, partly because with me is Andrew Page. G'day, mate. How are you? I'm very well, sir. How are you? I'm great. What better way to spend a Sunday afternoon than with you talking about mailbag questions that our listeners have? No, I'm kidding. Of course, we're doing this on Thursday, but we would come on on Sunday to do this. It's just the sort of people you and I are. Partly because we love our listeners, mostly because we like the sound of our own voices and we like talking about finance. <laughs> Let's be so, honest. Exactly. Yeah. Call a spade a bloody shovel and move on. Mate, we've got a... St- Stack of stuff in the mailbag. So let's do our little our level best to get through as many as we can. You well, though? I'm very well. Yes, very well, sir. Thank you. Hear Yourself? Hear I am also exceptionally well, mate. I uh, little inside information. I'm off fishing with my young bloke. We're going trout fishing this afternoon with some, some friends, so we'll see how we go on that. Oh, and nice. So I'm both excited about it and uh, slightly pensive. We'll see how we go. Hopefully <laughs> no one comes home with a... Uh, with a hook in a finger. Uh, let's let's go to questions. Uh, the first one's from Carl, mate, and I. This is a very very specific question, but it does go to property versus shares, and we know that you like to talk about that sort Uh-oh. of stuff. So this is, Carl's got a very specific circumstance, and I will say up front, I should say it regularly anyway. Uh, we can't give personal advice to Carl or anybody else, so we'll talk generally about the issues that people raise, and we'll get on with that. He says, "Hi, Scott and Andrew. My wife and I are in our mid forties." Mortgage free, good work, and about 150 grand sitting in a savings account, earning next to nothing. He says, "Yes, I know. Capital letters, painful. I also invested recently about thirty thousand dollars into shares, recommended by yourself at Share Advisor, which I'm a member of. Thank you, mate. Our plan was to purchase a rental property with some of our money as part of our wealth building journey. However, we have recently found out we would be up for 100% CGT on the rental property." when we sell. This is because we are classified as temporary residents due to both being New Zealand citizens on an unprotected special category visa. I've done a bit of research around this tax implication and I've also found out that due to being deemed temporary residents, we fall under a unique tax concession, which we do not pay any tax on foreign income and capital gains made on disposal of Australian non-real property assets, e.g. listed shares, as long as both of our temporary resident status remains the same. I know my wife was big on purchasing another property, but to me, ditching the house with a focus on investing more money into shares seems like a much better road to wealth building. If you take into account the money, we could be saving in capital gains tax. Does this sound like a no-brainer to you, or should I be looking at our unique tax situation differently? Maybe we should be aiming to achieve both. I would love to get your views and opinions on this matter. P.S. Love the pod and the practical down-to-earth, no bullshit. Advice, he says that literally, uh, you provide to everyday Aussies and the odd Kiwi. Happy New Year from Carl. Now, this gets taxed very quickly. I'm also going to assume, he says 100% CGT on the property. I read that went, surely they're going to start slogging in for like the entire profit. What he, I'm sure he means is there's no capital gains tax discount the rest of us get. So he'll be paying uh, capital gains tax at his marginal rate, whereas Australian residents pay at half of your marginal rate. So I assume that's what he's saying. I can't imagine, I did do a quick Google beforehand. I can't imagine a tax law that says we get all the capital gains from money made by, by foreigners. So that, that makes sense. Mate, um, this one seems relatively, I mean, I know you prefer shares over property anyway, but if you've got to pay up to, I don't know, depends on his tax rate, 30, 35, 40% capital gains tax with no discount on a profit from a property and no capital gains tax on shares, uh, I can't imagine too many, there's obviously scenarios mathematically, can't imagine too many scenarios where it makes sense to buy property, can you? No, I mean, it, look, if, if you felt as though you would get double the return, 
from mm. property, then it's, right, right, you, right. What, what you need to do is maximise your after-tax return. Yep. And if it means that you get a higher sort of pre-tax return right. and then you pay a higher rate of tax and you're still better off, then, then obviously that's, that's, that's the way to go. I yep. do feel as a general rule too many investors make investments through the lens of tax. Tax is yep. something that's important and you need to consider. But again, mm. I, I would much rather pay a really, really high rate of tax on something that gives me right. really great returns than pay you know, no t- or very little tax on something that gives me very poor returns. Because again, it's the after-tax return that matters. And Carl's not yeah. saying anything different, but I'm just, I just want to make yeah. that point. That's a good um, one. Uh, yeah, I, look, so a couple of just facts, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, you often point out to our listeners the chart that uh, Standard & Poor's <laughs> generate. Which shows the four Vanguard. asset classes. Yeah. Vanguard, sorry, yes, yeah, Vanguard. Right. Just people looking um, for it. Yep. Yep. Uh, we'll go over 30, 40 years or something, and yeah. you know, shares tend to do better. Well, is that guaranteed to remain always true? No. Are there periods where property does better than shares? Yes. So please don't send us any angry letters. I'm just stating, <laughs> I'm just stating the fact that on average, over those very long periods, mm-hmm. shares tend to do better. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and you get the better tax treatment. So I think I think that makes a hell of a lot of sense. The mm-hmm. reason, or not the reason, but a big part of of that consideration is that shares are also much, 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 much more volatile. Yes. So yeah. there's no there's no free lunch. Yes, you tend mm-hmm. to get a better return, but the ride tends to be much more of a white knuckled one as well. And as you've often said, I think you know if we were perfect uh, econobots, um, then you know. <laughs> That, that that shouldn't make a difference, but we're not. We're very emotional, temperamental kind of creatures and, and you have to factor that in and you have to be very honest with yourself. So if if you, Carl, and and your wife, um, uh, and I'm not suggesting for a second you are, but just, again, mm-hmm. if, if you do tend to be the people that would, would find it very uncomfortable to put all of your savings in the market right. and then wake up in six months' time and have half of it lost, even if that's sort of a, you know, quote, unquote, paper loss, that's going to be very, very, very painful. And it's probably also going to uh, incentivize you to make more emotional, less uh, quality, high quality mm-hmm. decisions. So, so, so you have to factor that in. But if you are a, 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 a perfect econobot, um, <laughs> then yeah, shares, shares are the way, shares are the way to go, I think. Yeah. But just don't put any, whether it's shares or property, don't put anything into either without, I would say, at least a five year kind of horizon. Yeah. Um, cash is really ordinary, as, as Carl's pointed out, um, but it really has this huge benefit of always being there when you need it, <laughs> and that is that is something to be said. Um, so yeah, and just one one quick correction: you say I, I like shares more than property, and that's true. <laughs> Having said that, I I, I think I you can't correct me after saying something I said was true. Well, it's, it's 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 true right now, but there are there are, there are, you know if I could if put it this way if I could buy an investment property that was yielding I don't know fifteen percent in dividends I'd be I'd be very tempted to put all my money into that right that's a very 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 attractive return relative especially on a risk adjusted basis yeah so you know I, I don't have anything against any particular asset I'm trying to look at any asset that I potentially put my money into yeah on a risk-adjusted return basis. And at this point in time, where I can buy an investment property and gross, get maybe mm-hmm. two, maybe 3% before costs, before tax, before everything else, or I can mm-hmm. find a, easily a whole bunch of dividend-paying shares that'll give me, with franking credits, maybe 6 7 8%. You know, it's a no-brainer. But that's that's the situation now. So I just want to put that out there. I, don't, I think it's always dangerous for any investor to say never say never. 
It depends. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. I think that's right. I'm gonna I'm gonna double down on so so Carl, just I'll, I'll just quickly add your answer, Andrew, and then I'll ask you another question. Um so firstly, we're not tax advisors, mate. So this is this is really, really technical tax stuff. And I would pay a couple hundred bucks and go and find an accountant or a financial planner rather than Google stuff myself. Uh, if you're different, you feel like you've got enough of a handle over it, go for it. But you don't want to find out at sale that you've made a, an incorrect assumption because the government doesn't care. Um, but I thought it was this is not going to get you out of a, a big tax bill if it comes to it. So just be mindful of that, particularly if you're going to at some point leave the country or become citizens. I don't know what the implications of that would be. Um, so again, we can't give personal advice anyway, but for anyone in this sort of situation where you're relying on tax law combined with immigration law, um, please just go and get some per- some advice. It'll cost you a couple hundred bucks. If we're talking about any sort of I mean, think the numbers you're talking about, mate, and compound that for a few years, and then all of a sudden something changes, um, you just don't want to be on the wrong side of, a, of an academic but very, very real change to circumstances that cost you a lot of money. So please do that. Um, second thing I would say is it also does depend a little bit on your uh, tax rate. So obviously, if you end up with, for example, a if you if you were to sell this property when you're no longer working, for example, uh, and you don't have you, you don't get any other income from any other source, you may find that you're being taxed at a lower rate than you think. And so the difference between um, CGT free on shares and you might be in a fifteen or twenty percent tax bracket on the property capital gains tax sale, that's not as big a deal if you're in the 45% tax bracket and paying full freight on that. So the differences between those circumstances kind of depend on what your marginal rate will be at the time of disposal of those assets. So also think about that. Again, without giving you personal advice, just anyone needs to think about it. If you're comparing taxable with non-taxable, obviously non-taxable is better if it's dollar for dollar, um, but the degree by which it's better and, and the potential returns are, are obviously very different across that. So please, please go and get personal advice. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, in terms of assets, so here's my question to you, Andrew. I, I know we have this question, the conversation kind of semi-regularly, at least versions of it. If I could borrow 95% of a property, if I could put 50 grand down on a million dollar property and I can get a 2% return on my on my million dollars, that's effectively a 40% return on the money I'd be otherwise putting down. I'm going to reckon it's got to be decades and decades and decades, even at a higher compound rate from shares before the dollar invested, the equity dollar invested is better off in shares than property. Is it? Is it not despite that? If you, dollar for dollar unle- unleveraged, I completely agree with you in a heartbeat. But I am open to the conversation that if you can borrow 85, 90, 90% of something, if I can put 50 grand down for a million dollar property or 20 grand down for a $400,000 property, whatever the numbers end up being, the sheer value of the leverage over a long enough period of time, even if there are dips in both asset classes in the meantime, if I was to pick a 20-year time period, how does how do shares beat property over 20 years, given those sort of numbers? It doesn't, although, um, again, we, we've often said, you know, leverage is the only way a smart person <laughs> yeah, can go broke. Exactly. Um, so it, it works it works really well as long as mm. you're able to mm. sort of service that loan and interest rates don't get away from you or there's no nasty yeah. shocks like that. You know, yeah. so you, you could you could say, well, I well, just leverage into shares, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Except you can't, though, right? That's that's I, I I completely agree with you. I, I would happily do that too. If if someone gave me ninety five percent LVR with no margin calls, I would do it tomorrow. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah, the yeah. reality is you can't, right? So you can probably you, nah. get safely thirty percent, maybe forty percent if you're super game and lucky and got enough backing. So you're thirty percent to shares, you're ninety five percent to property. I still I don't know. I just, and again, I'm not. I just, I just I wonder whether, given the unlevel playing field. Um, theoretically, you're right. I leverage the same same LVR shares still win by a long way, but if you can't get the same LVR, does that change the story? Uh, well, again, you'd have to look at that that return that that income return on a on a net basis. So yeah. yes, you're getting that that two percent, let's call it, 
Um, what was it? A million dollar property? What's that? Twenty grand or so? Um, if your interest bill is higher than that, well, it doesn't matter how many years you sort of roll it out. Mm, it's mm, it's mm. going to be pretty ordinary. <laughs> it's going to be yeah, right. negative, in fact. So you know what I mean. So th- that's that's the question, right? I know mm-hmm. I know that there's this mantra of lower for longer, but when you're making these very very long term investments, <laughs> and probably with an investment property, you sensibly you're sort of looking sort of ten years out. If you're super confident mm-hmm. that interest rates are going to stay super low over that whole period of time, and you're still going to be in a net position where you are getting a real after cost mm-hmm. positive return, and that you yeah. can do the the math so that that on your equity component is great, then yeah, absolutely I agree. But just just be aware of that risk. And especially as we were talking about on Friday, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about interest rates going up starting in, mm-hmm. in the middle of this year. And, you know, people are talking about your four or five sort of rate hikes. And I, I don't know, I don't put much stock in forecasts because they're generally wrong when it comes to interest rates, but <laughs> you just need yeah. to be, you just need to, I, I agree with what you're saying. I think um, uh, logically, rationally, you're right, mm-hmm. but that, that there is that but. And if, if, if interest rates change, if you lose your job or you lose something changes in your life where your circumstances yep. change, where you're no longer able to do that and then you are a forced seller um, yeah. because the bank's not going to, you know, they won't give you a margin call, but if you, exactly. if you stop paying your mortgage back, they will sell <laughs> your house for you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, that's do you know right. what I mean? So it's, it's kind of, yeah, it's, totally. not, it, it's not risk-free. But yes, other than that, yes, you're right. Agreed. Let's get a question from Craig. I love this one, mate. Real change in direction. Hi, Scott and Pagey, says Craig. I've been investing for many years and still can't make peace with this question. I buy quality businesses, purchase below their intrinsic value and hold long-term to compound returns. Preferably, I never sell. So he's pretty much on our page, mate. He then says, I bought Kodan in 2018 on the basis that it was a quality business with bright prospects and stupidly cheap. The thesis was correct and the price shot past my DCF valuation of 10 bucks to almost $20. Mm. At this point, no amount of reasonable assumption tweaking could justify the price. Despite the obvious overvaluation, I decided to go with my never sell strategy as it was a business I wanted to hold to retirement. Next, Mr. Market suddenly agreed with my valuation and the price collapsed to $10. The business thesis remained intact and the company prospects remained unchanged. My question, says Craig, do you sell quality businesses with the thesis intact if they get stupidly overpriced or do you subscribe to never sell? I thought I had resolved this dilemma, but it just goes to show you can't be sure until you live through it. Also, consider bringing back the high horse segment. He says, it was on point <laughs> and fun. I did a little bit of that on Friday. I didn't call it the high horse, Craig, but uh, I was thinking about your question when I, uh, when I did a little bit of a rant. So I hope uh, that was at least interesting and thoughtful. We may try and specifically uh, find some high horse stuff to rant about in the next couple of weeks, mate. So uh, stay, stay tuned for that, Andrew. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll put us on, on notice on that one. As long as, as, long as we have, as long as we have a, uh, associated sound effect. <laughs> exactly. Didn't, didn't we Thank used you. to? I'll, I'll get ago. the coconuts. I get the well. Yes. That was doing the studio. When we're in the studio, artist. we had the producer with us. We could do it on the exact Foley artist. That's right. They still calling that? <laughs> I think so. Anyway, thank you in advance, says Craig. Kind regards, and that's from Craig, mate. Um, it's a really good point. It's such a good point. He says this is worth ten bucks. It goes to twenty. I'm like, well, I'm not going to sell. But it goes back to ten. He's like, well, I knew that's what it was worth, and now I feel like I'm deal mm. for not selling. But I didn't want to sell because I want to hold it to retirement. What do you reckon? Well, his question is great. Do you sell quality businesses if the thesis is intact? If they get stupidly overpriced, or do you subscribe to never sell? What's your approach, Mister Page? Such an excellent, excellent question. My biggest regrets in investing are not the ones where I've lost money. Um, it's mm. the ones where I sold too soon. 
So, you know, um, it's going to make me sound smart, but it should really not because it's a really dumb <laughs> thing to do. I, as I've said before, I, I don't bring it up just because I like bringing it up because it but, is a good example. <laughs> I mean, I, I bought ProMedica shares at 80 cents and they were at 60 bucks not long ago. <laughs> you know, it's such an in- – I bought a fair amount of them too, you know. It's such an insanely high return. People talk about 10Xing and stuff, you know. This, this was like an 80X. It was phenomenal. But don't think for a second that I enjoyed all of that upside because on valuation and portfolio weighting grounds – I sort of progressively <laughs> sold as it got up and up and up and up and up. So that was absolutely, in hindsight, the wrong thing to do. It was it was a real regret. Um, so you can be too smart by half with, with some of this stuff. Mm. I think for me, and I've really wrestled with this a lot, um, uh, so I really empathise with, with Craig here. I think for me mm-hmm. it depends Sorry. on the nature of the business. If you're buying uh, a business, might be super high quality, yeah. But it's it's reasonably mature and you're sort of looking at best sort of upper single digit kind of earnings growth. Yeah. I think when things get silly in their price, it's it is it's not it's not too silly to to sell mm-hmm. some down. Um, because you it, it's not gonna surprise you by Woolies is not gonna report twenty mm-hmm. percent compound earnings per share growth over a five year period. It's just, it's yeah. it's impossible. I yeah. would I would go as far as, as saying. And so in those situations, I think it's okay. If, on the other hand, you're buying a business that has an incredibly long growth runway and has real serious potential Mm -hmm. to compound its earnings growth at very, very high rates for very, very, very long time, I think that's where you want to be less clever, quote, unquote, with, with your valuations. Because once, what, you know, once you start playing around with some assumptions, you'll see how wide the range of outcomes are. Mm-hmm. And so um, that, that would be the, the question for me. Now, I like Codan a lot, actually. It gets quite a bit of play on Strawman recently. This is a business that since, you know, 2015, it's gone from $0.07 cents earnings per share to 54%. And it's this beautiful staircase in a very steep. The guy make metal detectors for goodness sake, you know. That's right. Um, <laughs> they've done exceptionally well. Um, it's probably a little bit unfair using 2015 because they did have a bit of a stumble prior to that. But nevertheless, the last five, six, seven years have actually been really, really, really uh, good. Good for this business. Um, but at the same time, it is not a, a pure play software business that has incredible operating leverage and and, and capacity to grow very, very high. At high rates, with with minimal capital investment, um, so I, I'd probably say if things got really silly with that, it was it was the right decision to make. And as it's turned out, um, you know, it did come back to F, and it, and it, it would have been the right thing to do. And now you get the chance to buy buy much more shares with the with the with the cash that you uh, freed up when when you sold. But. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I'll say. Look, there's lots of ifs, ands, buts, and maybes, and whatever's all in, in that answer. I do, I do <laughs> totally, appreciate totally. that. So just to keep, yeah. just to end on a very simple note here, I would, <laughs> and I've said to you recently on a couple of occasions, mm. I, I do wonder if I would not have been much better off if I just never sold on anything. And I think if yeah. if if that if you are going for high quality and you are going for, uh, and you've got an eye on valuation and you've got a mm-hmm. and you've got a decent. Um, and you've got a bit of a growth bent, then then probably never selling is is probably going to be pretty okay. You can always mm. this is the thing with investing. You can always look back in hindsight and figure out how you could have done it even better. Even when you get great, <laughs> right. you can you say, well, I could have done even better still. Yeah. Yeah. But you'll yeah. still, I think, with that approach, you'll probably still do very, very, very well. So I agree. I'm going to I'm going to Craig be be uh, kind, but also, and I'm going to but I'm going to sort of. Um, 
raise some hypotheticals. I'm going to ask you to work with me on this one just because it's worthwhile. So I completely agree with everything Andrew said. I will say that few of us can be always accurate as we would like on our DCS or our assumptions or our prices. And so while in this case you've found an absolutely perfect copy of a case where the market agreed with you and then disagreed with you and agreed with you, and thus far you're saying it was 10, goes to 20, back to 10, I thought it was overvalued at 20, see I was right, um, therefore, you know, what should I have done? Now, your assumptions may be right and you might be the great, greatest DCFer, which isn't a word, uh, you may be the greatest proponent of the discounted cash flow in the world and you may have got it absolutely spot on with perfect foresight. I'm going to also, though, suggest to you an alternative option, which I don't think is necessarily wrong about because I don't know coding as well as you do. But maybe the shares are actually worth $20 because of a brighter future than you might otherwise envisage. And maybe they were fair value at 20 now they're cheaper at 10 Maybe they're actually only worth 5 and they've been overvalued the entire time, they're still worth 5 And I say that because you need to be a little bit careful with, and this, is, this comes back to, I guess, what I'm about to say in terms of how I approach it, which is I am always, I try to be as humble as I can when it comes to thinking about my ability to actually get this stuff right. And so, you know, was I right at 10, wrong at 20, right at 10? Maybe. Was I lucky that the market happened to go from 10 to 20 to 10? I said, well, see, I thought so. And I say that because there are plenty of businesses, and to Andrew's point about, you know, value and quality, um, there are plenty of businesses who have looked at it at 10, they've gone to 20, we've gone, oh, they've doubled, okay, well, maybe I should sell. And they go to 30 because of something that happened I didn't expect or an assumption I didn't make or whatever. And I think that's kind of what Andrew was saying in terms of, just the way that that circumstances can come out. Now, if you're buying a gas pipeline business where the volumes are reasonably fixed and the pricing is reasonably fixed and the assumptions are reasonably easy to, to work on, then you can probably reasonably say, if it goes from 10 to 20, it was worth 10, it probably is worth 10, right? Because the range of outcomes is so small that, and I've, another one you, you and I have talked about a lot, is growth hides a lot of valuation sins. And so mm-hmm. if you've got no growth, you've got to be really tight with your valuation. If you said on Amazon, I'll use that example, it's just too easy to, to use. It's kind of, it's big and it's it's kind of outside our markets easy. If you'd have said, my DCF says Amazon's worth 50, 100 bucks and the shares go from 1,000 to 50, 100, then back to 1,000, you go, oh, I'm an idiot. And the price goes up to 1,000, 50, 100, 2,000, 2,500, 3,000, you go either, oh my God, I can't believe I sold or thank God I didn't sell. In either case, it's just worth being, um, and I, I'm saying not being a humble Craig at all. I'll reflect on myself rather than you. I don't want to sound like I'm being critical or, or judgmental. I try and be really, really um, sanguine about how likely I am to have been right in these things. And so honestly, yeah, that, that's, I, ha- I have a saying, be, be slow to buy and slower to sell. Because if I've got the quality right, I've got the business right, and it's got a long-term tailwind, then that's fantastic. Now, you said that $20 obviously overvalued um, based on the assumptions you've made. And if those assumptions are likely to be accurate and you have a high degree of conviction that the assumptions can't be wrong for any reason, then I probably would sell at 20 bucks in, in that example. If Woolly shares went to $60 tomorrow, I would scream the house down getting everyone I knew to sell those Woolly shares because there is no reasonable assumption that they get to be worth that as opposed to be priced at that anytime soon. Because they just don't have the growth in them. They can't grow at 20% a year to justify that sort of PE. So you would absolutely do that. Telstra at seven dollars. I'd be screaming the house down. I sell. I own shares in Telstra. As it turns out, I'd be screaming the house down. There's not, there's not enough growth in that business to justify that price. This is silly. Sell the shares. And so, to answer your question, I actually prefer to never sell. Um, it's part of my good drinks ownership that you guys know about. We've talked about before. Um, but but and, but it's cost me a fortune by doing that because that money could have been redeployed, as Andrew said a few weeks ago, and I could have made even more money by doing it something else with it. On the flip side. 
um, I've done reasonably well holding some other stuff that seems our value keeps going. And so I kind of try and be roughly right rather than precisely wrong on this stuff. Um, if the growth is so slow and, and the price is too high, then sell is my view. If it's a high growth business or a business with decent long-term compounding where, you know, 15% a year, 10% a year doesn't seem like much, but if you come out at 10% for a very long time, then again, you know, the other thing is, what are you going to sell? If you're going to sell, what are you going to buy? If you sell Kona and buy something else, are you more likely to be right about that one or wrong? So it's it's really, really hard, mate. Never, never great to see a price halve. Uh, I have absolute, <laughs> absolute uh, sympathy for your position. I've been there. Andrew's been there. Um, it's a sucky, sucky thing to go through. Uh, but again, if the price goes back to 20 from here, then it's just a, you know, it's a point you've traveled through rather than the end game. Unless you're forced to sell now, unless you choose to sell now, the question is where to from here rather than it's down, what do I do now or does it seem reasonable? Um, so I hope that's given you some color at least to think about it. It's not an easy answer because the answer is both. Do I never sell? I try to never sell. Would I sell if, you know, uh, which about my Fortescue holding, Andrew? I will sell Fortescue at some point, almost certainly, because mm. I'm not buying it as a long-term compound at any price stock. It, it was, it looked too cheap. It, it's gone up a little bit, which is nice. If it goes up a lot more, I'll probably say, okay, well, I thought it was cheap at the time. I'm no longer so convinced. I don't have this long-term hold of retirement thesis, which you had, Craig. So I'd sell it. Uh, Sol Pats actually is a really good example. It went from 25 or so to 40. At that point, it looked expensive. It's down to 27 again now. Should I have sold at 40? Maybe. Do I think it's going to be worth 100 bucks at some point? Yeah. Do I really care, freak out too much about the, the short-term gyrations? Not really. Um, am I sure it wasn't going to go back from 40? Could it have stayed at 40 and gone higher? Probably, yeah. Um, so that's one where I'm like, you know what? It, you, it's almost a prize out of my cold, dead hands kind of company because it's such good quality and I'm going to have to pay capital gains tax if I sell anyway. They're going to buy it back in with less capital because I paid tax on that. I'm kind of happy to let that kind of thing ride. So I guess that's a range of events that hopefully will help. Anything else on that, Ram? No, I think we covered it. It's a good question. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. One from JJ. Greetings. A foolish question for the podcast mailbag, says JJ. I know Scott doesn't like flattery, so I won't indulge... Who's up to that, JJ? We love flattery. (laughs) Anyway, uh, here's the question. Why do most market indices use market cap or market capitalization as the selection criteria? We use these indices to represent the market, but certain sectors seem overrepresented. An outsider looking at the ASX 200 would think a quarter of Australia's market is just banks. Those indices move based on a mere handful of large companies, while the rest of the companies barely move the dial. Wouldn't profitability or some other metric be more useful? Being the biggest doesn't necessarily mean you're the best. Thanks and full on. That's from JJ. What would you say, mate? What a great question. Isn't it? Um, yeah. It, uh, look, to some extent, it is arbitrary. I will say that mm. the index, uh, or people that, that put indices together, mm. actually have all vari- a thousand different flavours. We sort of all <laughs> quote the big ones, which yeah. are market cap weighted, but yeah. you can have equal weight uh, indices. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head how they have gone historically relative to the large ones. Um, I want to say that there might even be a bit of outperformance or that might just be a little bit of recency bias. Anyway. um, I think the equal weighting ones are relatively new too, so it's kind of a bit of a hard one to correctly. Yeah, you can't go back for decades and decades. Um, I guess what they're trying to do here is they're trying to sort of say, look, of all the value of mm. all the money that's in the market, mm. um, we we want to like if, if you've got let's keep it simple. Let's say there's only two companies listed on the market. One's worth a yep. billion dollars and one's worth fifty grand. Yep. It's yep. probably not fair to just have an equal weight, uh, uh, like yeah, fifty percent each on the index yep. because the the 
the value of one is so much significantly higher than the other. It, re- it represents so much more value. I'm using this in the in, in not uh, in a slightly different context here. Is, is so much more significant. Like if you want to talk about the size of of the companies that are in this index, I mean, one just simply out, outweighs the other so significantly. So it does make a lot of sense to do that. Um, but I do have a lot of sympathy for the for the point of view. And I, and I, I, I actually, you've made this point before, Scott, that. This is one of the potential negatives for the index ETFs on the Aussie market because you are basically, you know, it's sort of like there's not much, as much diversification as you would otherwise think because as as the listener rightly points out, Mm. you know, a quarter of that index is in a very, very small number of stocks that are highly correlated with one another. Um, I don't know. I'm rambling. What What do you think? So I've just looked up some numbers, mate, and there's a thing out from Vanek. Now, Vanek is an index provider, so keep that in mind. Not that I don't think they're being absolutely legitimate, but they've got a dog in the fight. It's always worth mentioning that. Um, since December 20, so 2002, so last, this was done in 2018, so it would have been 16 years. I can't promise you what's happened since then. Uh, the equal weight index is up 400%. The market cap weight index is up 300%. So that's oh, a pretty go. good outperformance over 16 mm. years. Um so, JJ, I think it's worth breaking apart the the thinking or in terms of why you're asking the question. So, the the honest answer is that if you had to buy the market, which is so, the, what is an index? An index is a a representation of how something else is performing, and they put it in points to make it easier. What they could do is simply report instead of points, report in dollars. And so the Australian market has gone from $1.63 trillion to $1.68 trillion today, a gain of whatever that percentage is, 4%, something like that. Um, and they, would, they could do that, absolutely. Instead of that, they turn into points and say it's gone from 7,000 points, 7,050 points or whatever the numbers are um, because it's easy for most people to comprehend. It, it, it takes away from the dollars. But the reality is if you had to buy the ASX, you would have to spend a quarter of the money you did buy, you doing that buying the mining companies and you'd spend another you know, X percent on banks and X percent on retail and X percent on telecommunications. So the, the the reason they use market cap is because that's actually the dollar value of the market. If you had to buy it or if you had to sell it, you would get money in that proportion. And it absolutely makes sense, right? Because how much is the Australian stock market worth is the is the question they're trying to answer because they're giving you the summary of how, how have shares performed uh, and and the, the you know, the, the reality is we're all paid in dollars on that saying, well, the market's up 4% because BHP's up 2% and something else is up 6%, but it's this tiny $50,000 company to Andrew's point, and you'd buy them both, you'd have to, you wouldn't pay 6% more, mm. you'd pay a whole lot more because you're buying BHP and a whole lot less because you're buying the other one or vice versa. And the dollar value of the increase of both is just not relevant. And so to the extent that the index is just simply trying to represent the market and the market is measured in dollars because that's what it costs, it's exactly the right thing to use when someone says, how is the Australian stock market performing? How much value has been created or destroyed? The only way to measure that is in the dollars and we call that an index rather than putting it in dollar values. But again, if we just simply reported the dollar value of the market every night, it would be exactly the same as the market cap weighted index. Comparatively, if the $50,000 company went up by 100% and BHP went up by 1%, we would say the average market gain was 49% today and it just wouldn't, it wouldn't represent the, the average dollar value increase of ASX traded shares, which is what it's trying to represent. Now, is it relevant for investors making investment decisions? That's a whole different question. That's what Andrew's already kind of talked to. And so you're absolutely right. Um, if you had to buy the banks, you'd spend a quarter of the money buying the banks, as you say, which is spot on. But what's the better investment approach? What is going to give you better investment returns 
Those are all very, very, very different questions and don't have to apply to the ASX 200 at all. There is no need to use that to measure your own returns or to, as an investment choice. If you're saying, I want to maximize my returns, which, which option should I choose? A very, very different thing. And I know that sounds like I'm being, I'm splitting hairs, uh, but it's a really important difference because what's the index for is just simply measuring the, the market. How should we invest, as you say, that's a very different thing. Would profitability be more useful for an investor to work out what companies to buy? Maybe. Um, but it's not necessarily going to give you the, the dollar value of the market in the same way. And that comes down to then things like active indexing versus passive indexing, um, active stock picking, which Andrew and I do as day jobs. Um, uh, those, are, those are the kind of the different ways of thinking about how you could pick a, an index to track the market with. I have a lot of, I have a lot of time for... Um, uh, equal weighting as, as a concept. I personally have own units in a Vanguard Small Ordinaries ETF, which basically excludes the top 100, 20, 50, whatever the number is. I don't even know. Because uh, I, I, I don't want to. I don't want 25% of my investment dollars going to the bank. So you're absolutely right, JJ, in terms of, you know, is, is, does that seem reasonable for investors? No, I, I wouldn't. I don't buy the Australian ASX ETF. Would I buy an equal weight ETF? Possibly, yeah. I do worry about reweighting. I have to say, I, am, I, don't, I, don't, I haven't done the maths, but I imagine if you had to reweight you know, if, if, what's a good example? CSL was this tiny little serum laboratory spun out of the, spun out of the Commonwealth government. Now it's one of our top half a dozen companies I'd speculate. Mm. If you had to reweight that all the time without, rather than riding the wave all the way up, you know, when CSL goes from a dollar to $5 to a hundred dollars to $300, I want 60 times my money in theory, if I buy CSL, I don't want someone to say, well, it's gone from 1% weighting to, or sorry, 0.1% weighting to now 2% weighting but it's only going to be 0.1% of the asset allocation again. I don't want to sell back or sell out those things. So I don't know how the maths works. I don't have to do the work, um, but I'm a little bit, I, I kind of don't love rebalancing for the same reasons. And this feels like if you're equal weighting something, you're kind of rebalancing away from the winners back to the others on an equal weighting basis. I'm not sure if that makes a heap of sense, but I might be misunderstanding it. Your thoughts, mate? No, I, I've got a lot of sympathy for that. I mean, it's kind of the, the former question, right? Like yep. continually reweighting means you miss out on the big, biggest. I think gains. so. That's I just yeah, yeah, and like I get that you don't have eighty percent of your portfolio in a single stock, but I also think if the biggest companies give you the if a few companies gives you really big returns, think about the U.S. market, right? Something mm. like was the top dozen companies responsible for seventy five percent of the U.S. It's, I was market, gonna I was right? trying to think of the stats, but it's some it's it's of that flavor. Yeah, and like would I want the top if if it was ten out of five hundred the S and P five hundred, they'd be is that two percent? That's my math. Yeah, two percent. Um, do I want them to be 2% the whole way through as they go from 1% of the index to 50% of the index? Mm. Do I want to say 2% of that and lose that compounding? I don't think I do. So I, I think, I think, I think that I would prefer a market cap index, but I'm not a million percent sure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. I mean, these are, these are, we get a lot of these ones where they're kind of yeah. like very straightforward questions in a way, mm -hmm. but then you sort of pick at them and you find yourself going deeper and deeper a into, question. A, to, to a rabbit hole. It's, <laughs> exactly. it's, it's, really, it's really perplexing. I um, will say this, I don't spend much time at all thinking about the index other yeah. than yeah. as a benchmark over Correct. a long period of time because if I'm, if I'm not beating it, then I'm just wasting my time because I, yep. yep. I just buy the ETF and do something else with my time. Yep. Um, other than that, I don't spend a huge amount of time doing it. My, my portfolio, for what it's worth, tends to be not very correlated at all yeah. <laughs> to, to the market. I've had days, some of these really nasty days, um, <laughs> I've underperformed the market substantially. Other days, yeah. I, like, I outperform. It just sort of, uh, yeah. it, 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 matters, it matters as a benchmark over a meaningful period.
period of time. Other mm-hmm. than that, I actually don't spend much time thinking about it. You know, when when you're watching the news at night and they say the market was up 0.7%, it just means nothing to me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a, because the, the things that are moving that index, I generally don't hold. And B, because, mm-hmm. you know, what what's the difference? <laughs> Between yesterday and today. Yeah, exactly. No, it's good points, good points. Hey, um, question from Matt. Hello, Scott Andrew. Thanks for the podcast and all the best for 2022. Thank you, mate. I have a Thank question you. for the podcast. I don't, this is a, this one on spec, Matt. We may have to hold this over unless you've got a good answer. It's in relation to dividend shares. If you both had to pick two dividend paying shares each, what would they be and why? Secondly, how many individual different dividend paying shares would you suggest to have in a portfolio that is based around dividend income? Thank you both for your insightful and interesting podcast. Keep up the great work. Kind regards, Matt. Do you want me to have first go? Do you ever think, or you uh, you have something? In uh, mind? I'm always nervous with these questions because <laughs> we start by saying, "Well, we can't give advice." Yeah. And then you throw a few names out there, and everyone takes it as advice. <laughs> yeah. And, well, yeah, yeah, we can we can and, we can give our thoughts on stocks, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and and the other the other tricky thing is 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 that because uh, we we you and I have both been doing this for a long time, you can yeah. just look really dumb for a long time. <laughs> exactly. And if in five years' time, what you said five years ago turned out mm-hmm. to be a really good quality mm-hmm. income stock, it's no one remembers that anyway. So it's like yeah. there's 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 no there's there's very little <laughs> upside for me personally. It's all about me, of yeah. course. Scott, as you know, um, but it's kind of it's kind of like what what I'm I'm a, I'm really big on this idea of that you can borrow an idea, mm-hmm. but you can't borrow the conviction. Yeah. yeah. So when when someone's got some money, I'm not having a go at the listener here at all. Yeah, by the way, yeah, this is yeah. just in general. Someone's yep. like, oh, what should I buy? And it's sort of it, it's sort of like okay, that sounds good until it goes bad, and then it's just like <laughs> because you didn't really because you only bought it on the say so of some person who you, you really don't know. Yeah. Um, when when the the demons come, which they surely will, um, it, you've you've got no bait. Or what do I do now? Because you you didn't own the decision. So I just I just want to put that out there. I think I, like it. I, I think it's I'm, I'm very much all care, no responsibility, and that sounds really it, it's it's the whole basis of straw man. To be honest, I mean yeah, it's right. not it's not there. Don't don't right, join right. that because you know what I'm doing is on there. But mm-hmm. put put your own ideas up there and let's let's all debate and challenge them and and, and see how we all sort of go. I I I, I just I. I feel as though, and let's let's throw some names around. Happy to do that, but please yeah. take all of that in 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 um, take it Love to heart because it's important. Love it. I'm gonna I'm gonna actually talk to exactly that point, mate, from a different perspective. And again, to be we're being a little bit difficult with the answer, but it's in, but it's important distinction, right? Because it matters a lot. So we have a service the month before called Everlasting Income, cheap free plug. Um, that its job of that service is to maximise the income. Maximize the maximize quality income from our portfolio of quality dividend paying shares. So we're all that income first. We're not going for the maximum yields because sometimes they're crappy companies and those yields can be short lived and or it can be destroy asset value. And while we're about income, we don't want to destroy asset value for the sake of it. So I would add, so you know that that's that service. On the other hand, we have another service called Dividend Investor that Andrew used to run back in the day, mm-hmm. back um, in the day. which is actually all about market beating stocks. So we're trying to get a market beating total return but they have to pay a dividend to be included. Now, if you're a dividend investor, those two outcomes, even, even before we get to which stocks, which two stocks for a dividend portfolio? Well, it depends on the goal for the portfolio. Do you want to maximise income and don't care about the asset value? Do you want to maximise the asset value but also get some income? Do you want to mix the two up? Um, do you want income that'll never fall? Do you want income that's max, the current maximum? You don't care about next year's income? It, those things get really, really messy really fast. I'll add to that even, even on top of Andrew's points, 
don't buy two dividend paying shares. Don't buy four dividend paying shares. You want to be diversified, right? So if you're looking for some ideas to add to a portfolio of dividend paying shares, you've got 20 and you want to think about a couple others to maybe think about adding to the list, then that's that's a reasonable question. Again, not the, the original question is wrong, Matt, but um, that that's a reasonable question. But, uh, you know, again, you know, the, the why question you ask is almost the, almost the point. Um, so I'll, I'll I'll throw a couple of names out there, Andrew, and, and you can jump in. Mm-hmm. Um, if I had to do widows and orphans dividend paying stocks that I felt the dividend was super secure, I trusted the company. It's a long term investment. Solpats is far and away the easiest choice. It's not the best best yield you can get. It's probably about half of the best yield you can get, quite honestly. But it hasn't dro- dropped it in twenty years. One of only two or three companies to do it. I think it's longer than that now. It's um, longer. Yeah. One of two or three companies in the entire asset has never cut their dividend. So if you want to, if you want to kind of bank on it, you can't even bank on it. I can't promise you that. But if you're looking to bank on a dividend check that you hoped was least likely to fall, Solpats is a walk-up start, just an absolute walk-up start. But you can get double that with a bank. You can get more than that with Telstra. You can get, you know, I own Telstra shares. Um, so you know what? What are you looking for from the portfolio? Um, is the answer. If you said I'm going to put my entire portfolio into an annuity type income stream where I genuinely don't care about the asset value, and I can imagine that um, effectively that's why we're on everlasting income. We hope to not lose value and add moderate amounts of value over time, but we're really not managing the asset value at all directly. We don't measure it against an index. The only service in the monthly field we don't have a benchmark for, because we're specifically saying we don't care if the asset value fails to beat the benchmark because we're running this service for people who are saying, I'm in or near retirement. All I care about is the cash flow income stream between now and, now and death. To be really blunt, that's all I'm looking for. And so the asset value is irrelevant. All that matters is we maximize the, the quality income with some tax benefits because they also can use franking credits. And that's the other part of your question, Matt, of, you know, do the franking credits matter? Can you use them? Do you care? Um, so it's really, 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 really difficult. Um, also, then you've got things like, you know, short-term, long-term. So we talked about dares before, cracking yield in the past. Um, mm. Profits down, dividend's probably going to fall a little bit. Do I care about that? Not actually personally, no, because the yield will fall from stupidly good to still pretty good and probably go back up again. So, you know, I don't care the dividend might fall by 25%, not because I don't like money, but because it was possibly unsustainably high in the past. It will go back up at some point in the future. And in the meantime, we get paid a really nice yield. So Adairs is another one. I own shares in Adairs as well. I mentioned those too. Um Heaps of others out there. I think that great businesses like West Farmers, Woolies and Coles are worth buying if you're just about income and you want to be diversified away from banks but you don't care about the asset values because I also think that Coles and Woolies aren't particularly cheap. They're not stupidly expensive, but they're not particularly cheap. So I wouldn't buy them if I was trying to beat the market, but I might buy them for income. Um, so, 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 so hard to answer the question. But that's mm-hmm. there, there, there are a few thoughts, a few companies, um, and, and again, it, it completely depends. We can't give you personal advice anyway, Matt. So uh, even if you told me, you know, specifically what you wanted, I couldn't tell you what you should do. Uh, but as a, as a rule, there's some ideas to look at. Uh, any, you, any names come to mind, Ray? Well, I just on that, I, just, I really want to double down on a point you made here. And this is when I was running Dividend Investor, I really was very um, aware of this, is mm-hmm. that someone approaches the market saying, I want income. Yep. And so it's very natural to look at yield. Yeah. But generally speaking, if you're a high, or if you're sorry, if you're a longer term investor, the high yielding dividend stocks can be the worst income stocks. Right. Um, let me ex- <laughs> <laughs> let me explain that a little bit yeah. more. Yeah. So you've got something like NAB, right? So uh, ten years ago, what twenty thirteen, as far mm-hmm. back as what's on my screen here, mm-hmm. they were paying a dollar eighty seven per share in dividends, and now they're paying a dollar twenty seven. Yeah. Now even before. COVID and the rest of it, that dividend was just flat, right? So you had this really high yield, but no growth. 
Now, let's contrast that with something that's very much a growth stock. I don't keep mentioning it today, but, you know, um, Promaticus, you know, 10 years ago was paying two cents and now it's paying 15 cents. Now, at that point in time, the yield would have been really ordinary. It would have been, you know, nothing what NAB was offering. But when you look at the the yield on purchase price, it's mm-hmm. absolutely been phenomenal. Mm. So what you really want, the best income stocks are the ones where the dividend is is increasing each year. That they they will over time, not in the first year, not in the second year, yeah. you know, but but over time eventually will will provide a far, far, far better stream of income mm-hmm. because otherwise you've essentially got a bond. You know, and if the dividends yeah, not, if the dividends not going anywhere, yeah. you can bet, you know, panning out and excluding short term volatility, the share price isn't going anywhere either, which has exactly been the case with NAB. Uh, Woolies is another great example, really attractive yield. Yeah, sure. Added in some franking credits, brilliant. Nothing, nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Mm. Twenty thirteen, they were paying a dollar eighteen per share. Mm. Then a dollar twenty one, dollar twenty three is increasing, and then it was sixty eight cents, seventy four cents, ninety one cents, ninety cents, eighty three cents, and now most recently up at a dollar. So it's kind of like it's 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 actually contrast. I mean, there's there's some other names out there. I've always, I, I wouldn't. It's hard now because values. Uh, some of these have been discovered, so the value isn't there. But I always thought Objective Corp. These guys do software for councils, et cetera, et cetera, and I won't get into it. But they've been such a great manager of, of capital and the rest of it, and yeah. their dividends have tripled over the last 10 years. Yeah. And they've managed to do that while growing the business phenomenally well and without issuing any new shares. That is a great in- – it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's just like it's, it, it's everything. It's, it's, it's the full package, you know. I get wonderful growth, increasing share price, an increasing dividend, and a, and a wonderful, attractive – Fully franked for most years, mm. dividend stream. It, it, it it's it's the best, and and so the point here is really just to flog this horse to death. Is <laughs> is is that you know don't just go for yield. In fact, yeah, every now exactly. and again you see a company that goes like offering a ten percent yield, and it just seems too good to be true, and it is too good to be true because mm. the market's mm. not that silly. So you'll have companies that have just particularly really great Fortescue, right? That you mentioned yeah, that before. Yeah, yeah. Really, really great period of super high iron ore prices wash, you know, just a wash in cash and they paid out this huge dividend. It's, it's not going to be repeated. You know, it, 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 that, that that is actually probably a really poor income stock. And I don't think anyone, I certainly know you weren't buying it for income. Mm. I don't think anyone should buy it for income. And yet, ostensibly, the yield was far more attractive than a lot of other things that were on the market. Yeah. So what really matters is the sustainability of that dividend and the growth of that dividend. And a really nice rule of thumb here is um, the, the your long-term return generally for income stocks, a really great valuation approach is to take the starting yield and then add to that how much you think the dividend can on average grow each year. Mm. So I personally, if I was an income investor, I'd far prefer something at a 3% yield that whose dividend could grow at 10% per year mm-hmm. than a uh, 6% yield whose dividend might grow at 1% or 2% per year. So overall, I'm going to get a far, far better return in the former. Correct. So, um, with, with the gonna, exception, this is where it's challenging, right? If you're if you're a retiree in retirement, I think I'm going to start with half as much income this year. On yes. the hope that maybe in 20 years' time you might have. Well, no, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just that the, the, so we run AI exactly that way, right? We actually eschew yeah. those businesses that are. So let's a great example is Dominoes, mate. And we, we've talked this one before, but I just I just picked up picked some numbers and I can't get the actual dividend numbers. But I think Dominoes probably didn't pay a dividend at all in 20. 2000 and where's the date here? 2005, I think it is. Um, and then it starts to pay a dividend, mm. which is lovely. Uh, and the dividend is not much for 
the first little while, right? It's It pays out cents in the dollar. Now, go fast forward 17 years, long time. The last dividend must have been something like 80 cents based on what I can tell here, which is, you know, when it was originally a $2 share price, we're talking about a 40% yield, right? Mm. So in terms of like growth, growth of dividends, you know, it's gone, it's gone from nothing to, to a squillion dollars. Now, the share yeah. price also got up, which is nice, and the income has risen beautifully. So if you bought Domino's, I want to say, okay, this, the, ch- the chart's weird and the scale's weird. It's just a complex pull, pull up. But let's say it was 10 cents a, a share and now it's 80 cents a share. You've got eight times your income over 17 years, which everyone's going to be like, oh, my goodness, I had enough money. Then I've got even more money. That's wonderful. But if it wasn't enough money to start with, then you can't buy it. And if you didn't know it was going to grow like that, you can't do it. But as you say, I, I completely agree, mate. Dividend growth is... If you're looking for a total return or you're looking for a value maximization over to, if you're in that compounding phase, you're exactly right. That's exactly what you should do. Couldn't, yeah. couldn't agree more. Look, I'll put one name out there just for the sake yeah. of it. And again, I don't own shares in this and it's not my style, um, but I think APA Group is interesting. You mentioned mm. gas pipelines before. Yeah, it is. That's what these guys do. Yeah. Um, very, very so boring, <laughs> but, but, but yeah. very, very stable, right? Yeah. So yeah. their dividends have actually been remarkably consistent. Uh-huh. They've grown each and every year, even throughout the pandemic. Paying thirty-four cents per share, unfranked a lot, for a lot of the time, just mm. because of the mm. structure. But still, you're getting a five point five percent yield today on on the start, mm. and that's uh, so yeah, from thirty-four cents to fifty-one cents over that uh, that period. So growth, consistency, and an, and a nice attractive yield. Uh, so one one to look at. Yeah, nice one. I liked that a lot, mate. Really important. Uh, yeah. So sorry, I couldn't answer your question, Matt, uh, directly, but hopefully the value is actually in the answer. One from Nick. Hi, Scott and Ram. I'm a regular listener and Extreme Opportunities subscriber. And something Scott said in episode 502 made me stop and question my plan. And I probably did misspeak. I would not misspeak. I wasn't, I wasn't clear enough, so I'm glad Nick's asked the question. It was in reference to a startup broker that he has tried, Perla, and the risks of using new startups in general. What I understood from previous episodes and the Perla side itself is that chess sponsorship meant if the broker went belly up, I could simply transfer my portfolio to another broker. Scott, can you elaborate on your concerns in particular what you see is the real risks of using a startup broker platform if they are chess sponsored. Thanks, Nick. Uh, Nick, I was, yeah, sometimes we short, it's about like the time we talk for, sometimes we talk in shorthand. Um, I have zero worries that Perla is going broke and I have zero worries that if they did, I could get my shares out. Now, I shouldn't say exactly zero, nothing zero risk, right? Almost by definition. Not because it's Perla, just because nothing has 0% chance of happening, like mathematically. Right? It's just, we could all get, we, this could be a simulation, we could all be run by lizard people. There's, there's a chance. So it's 0.000 <laughs> something percent, but there's a chance. Um, so, you know, uh, you're, you're right, mate. Thank you for, thank you for raising it. Um, I don't think there's a, I, I, in the real world, I'm not worried at all about Perla and I'm not worried about, uh, any chess-sponsored broker. That's why I love chess sponsorship, by the way. Like, I seriously, seriously love it. Um, plenty of people don't see the value in it. It's the cheapest insurance in the world. It's just it's just like, I don't care. I'll pay an extra buck a trade to be chess-sponsored if it comes to it. Uh, $5 a trade if it comes to it, frankly. It's just way too... It's way too simple, cheap insurance not to do. Um, why Can not I... Change? Sorry, mate, just oh, to jump just, in. Yeah, please. If please, I'm please. not chess-sponsored and I go yes. for issuer-sponsored... Yes, the broker doesn't hold my shares, though, do they? Like correct. they're held on the registry. Correct. If the issuer sponsors themselves, correct. But the alternative yep. is, is uh, street sponsored. So if you go with, I won't name any brokers. So I don't want to either misspeak and, and get sued or um or just bag anyone out. We saw 
brokers in I think Opus Prime was the last one I can think of. Oh yeah. Who you can have your if you have your shares in the broker's name, you still have beneficial ownership but not legal ownership. And in that case, if the broker goes broke, you are not covered for that. So the, the, there's three options. One is issue a sponsor, which Andrew mentions, which is Woolies effectively. If you own Woolies shares, uh, I think that I gave my Woolies shares originally. I think it was a um. I worked for all these at once and I think I got some employee shares or something. And that was issuer sponsored. So that actually, you know, effectively the, the, the um, legal uh, relationship was held with and by the broker. Uh, Chess sponsored is, again, the broker has that responsibility, but Chess stands separate to the broker as a, as a, a legal ownership structure. Or you can have it in the broker's name where they just say, yeah, no, I, I know you've got 100 shares. You know you've got 100 shares. If you want them, I'll give them to you. Uh, which is right, except if they go broke, you can be, lose money. And, and plenty of people have, I wouldn't trade in street name if you paid me. They're called street name. I wouldn't pay in str- trade in street name if you paid me. Uh, no matter who it was, it's just, it's just not worth it. I, you know, Insurance is there for a reason. Chess is the world's cheapest insurance. Just take it. Yep. Anyway, uh, so I'm not worried about Perla. I'm not worried about any of my other brokers going broke. I always you choose Chess sponsorship if it's available. You can't do it in the US, unfortunately, but here it's available, so I take it. Um, I my point was I, I don't remember the point I actually specifically made Nick so let me let me talk firsthand about my thoughts about Perla and other brokers I am not sure that Perla will be the best broker for me over time and I'm just honestly I'm lazy and I'm reluctant to transfer my entire holdings and history and everything over to Perla on the off chance that I might not like it they might close down I might have to just change back again or, or change to some other broker um, it's not a big deal like, it doesn't really matter which broker you go with I've used Comsec for I want to say mate 20 years and I'm just happy with them and if Perla ends up being better and cheaper, I'll eventually transfer all my shares over there and use them exclusively, probably. If I don't love them, I'll probably transfer it back to Comsec and go with that. Or I might keep both. Um, so it wasn't, I didn't mean to say, if I did say that I was worried about going broke or out of business, it wasn't that I was worried about losing anything. It was just, it's just a pain. I just, you know, I, I, I got all my Comsec stuff done up. When I buy shares, they send an email to share site, to let them know they bought it. All my history is there. And I'm like, do I really want to shut all that down and start over a new broker when I trade so infrequently? Yeah, I've got a new broker, but do I want to transfer all the old stuff away? No, not really. It's just a pain right now. So whilst it's not costing me anything to keep shares in Comsec, I might as well, so I do. Um, if Perla doesn't work out for whatever reason for me or as a business, they'll, they'll tra- transfer them somewhere else. I have zero zero worry about that as a risk. It's just a pain. So I'm, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm just benefiting my own slothfulness and saying I could and I probably should maybe. I can't be bothered. I'm probably not going to yet. Uh, eventually, if I kind of feel like, yeah, Pearl is going to be around forever, it's worth the effort of making the change, then I will. Um, so it's not not a matter of worry about risking Perla. Uh, my, I'm not worried about my finances being risked if Perla doesn't survive or thrive. Uh, it's, I, my, my, my laziness uh, is just that I'd rather not do it and have to do it and change to someone else and then someone else and someone else. It's just too hard. Can't be bothered. Uh, so I, 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 I'm not doing it. So that, that, that's the only reason and thanks for the opportunity to clear it up. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, another thing... Um, one, it's of all the risks that come with investing in, in the share market, this is a really small yes. tail risk. You know, any yep. any of the half major names, it's it's very very unlikely <laughs> that you're going to get dotted out of anything. Mm. And in the mm. event that that does happen, yeah. there's this thing called the um, National Guarantee Fund. Mm-hmm. So every broker has to make an annual contribution to that. So if they do not settle on your shares or they transfer your shares or they don't pay you out for like that, that you can actually be compensated through that fund. Right. So it's, so you've actually got a lot of um, investor protections around this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I, I wouldn't lose any sleep over it. Which, whichever way you go, I'm with, I'm with you, Scott. I think chess mm-hmm. sponsored just too easy and, and safer and oh, better. I, just, I, just, I don't, I just, of all the things I can do with my money in my life, 
taking a risk I don't have to take to save pennies. Mm. It's just like I just I, you, you couldn't you could not honestly you could not make me do it. I just have no interest in you. Right, it's a tiny risk, and the cost yeah. of insurance is tiny, and make it all go away. It's like I I don't I don't know why you would try and play. Yeah, you know, and again, of all the ways you can make money. Make trying try to make a couple of extra bucks by choosing a broker that didn't give you chest sponsorship and maybe saved you two bucks in, in brokerage. The chance of me being right about my investing approach is is I'm going to buy at a price that's way more than two dollars wrong. Mm. It's just it's just it's just it's I don't know, mate. I, everyone's different, and some people just just kind of philosophically desperately need to feel like they're screwing every dollar out of everybody, and that's fine. If that's if that's you, go for it. Um, and you desperately need to not be screwed over, but I kind of feel like that's a personality trait more than a financial choice because financially. It's like saying, oh, my house probably won't get burned down. Look how much money I'm saying by not insuring my house. And yeah, eventually I'll do it. If I, you know, maybe there's a chance and I'll, I'll give it a go at that point. It's like, you could, but just, just, just do, it. do it. Like don't take silly risks. Just dumb. Just yeah. dumb. Yeah. This is, I'm, so I don't want to um, mm. put put the caller in this this but, box at all, but it, it does, it, it, I often, speaking to people who are outside of this, they always mm. go, oh, but you know, Companies are always lying and they're fudging the mm. figures and you can point to <laughs> HIH and you can point their examples yeah. out. And I'm oh, sure it happens all the yep. time. Yep, yep, yep. And you know, how do you know they're telling the truth, et cetera, yep. et cetera. And, yep. and, and I really get that. But at the same time, you've you got to look at it statistically. There's, there totally. is, it is 2,200 companies on the yep. market yep. and you've got a tiny, tiny handful that every now and again do something wrong. Uh, and that's not a reason not to participate in the best wealth creation engine on the planet. That, you know, yes, that's such a good point. It, it's it's sort of something that like, can I guarantee that when Commonwealth Bank produces its next financial statements and mm, they're absolutely mm, 100% mm. correct and there's no funny business going on there? Well, no, yep. I can't. Yep. And there's always potential for that that kind of stuff. But as a reason not to invest, <laughs> I think it's I think <laughs> it's a really I think it's 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 of all of the risks that we face Such with investing, like that yeah. is like number 482 on the list. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. just it's just not one worth worrying. It's completely outside the realm of the question. Yeah. But I just I raise it because it it, hap- it I get asked it often enough that yeah. it's worth sort of sort of highlighting that's that is not a risk worth worrying about and on the event that you are unlucky enough that someone has done something completely dodgy uh, <laughs> a business you know you've done a Christopher Scase or whatever you know it's sort of like even yeah. even then if you've, you've got a diversified portfolio it's it's not going to make the whole endeavor um, you know worthless, worthless so yeah. d- don't don't stress about that kind of stuff there's bigger there's, there's a lot of bigger things to worry about Mate, we're at the end of the podcast, which means it's time to have a drink. Uh, and I say that because those who listen regularly know what I'm about to say. I can, I can I say, I will talk about stocks as much as people want me to. And because we talk about Kogan a lot, people ask me about Kogan a lot, hence the drink. Uh, and so I don't, I don't want to not answer them, but I also don't want to make it the Kogan show. So I'm kind of, I'm, I will answer the question. We'll like raise it and we'll cover it just because people ask. And, you know, it's, it's churlish not to. But I'm also mindful. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to be, I, I promise you, I'm, this, I'm taking these questions in literally uh, uh, chronological order that they, they were received. So it just it happens to be that we've got a question about Kogan. Um, as I said, I, I, I don't want to overdo it, but I also, you know, because we've talked about it before, not answering questions would be also churlish and not looking after our listeners. So with that, with that preamble, Dan says, hey guys, was listening to an episode from August 27th where a moderately deep dive on Kogan drink was discussed, particularly around e-commerce, the bull case for Kogan, and that it was potentially a good buy at 11 bucks. What are your thoughts now, six months on, down at $8.24-ish? Now, I will say this was sent a little while ago because the shares as I speak are now at 685, so they're even lower than that. Uh, so apologies for those who follow my, my recommendation thus far. Um, I'm a holder. I think there's legs in Kogan still, especially when or if Kogan can capture even a small part of a large and growing market. But I'm a bit shy when it comes to dollar cost averaging or not. I was burnt by Newix. 
On a similar line of thinking of online retail, Adairs has barely moved on the market despite seemingly good results and growth. Seems like retail is losing its COVID sugar hit, but is recommended in several places. Fool and Ausbiz being two. We've also talked about Andrew owning shares. I've owned, I've owned shares. What am I, I, I don't missing? Own, I don't own shares, just to be clear. I did. Sorry, I think you did. No. Uh, what am I missing? Is the market not looking long-term enough? Interested to hear your thoughts. Cheers, Dan. Mate, I'm going to keep this brief. We've done it a lot. I see zero change in the investment thesis on over the long term. Uh, the market ha- hates Kogan because it's decided that it's not prepared to pay more for a business it's not confident enough in its long-term growth. And the market's entitled to do that. And for all I know, the market could be entirely right. So, uh, you know, I we, we've talked before, Andrew, about the idea of, you know, strong opinions loosely held, right? I have, I have a high degree of confidence in Kogan. It's one of my largest positions. But I'm also very, very, very aware I could be completely wrong. And I would never say to anybody that takes any of my advice, listens to any of my commentary or reads any of it, that I'm going to be 100% right. And if anyone does that for you, run away. Just because they're confident talks more about their state of mind than the reality of their likelihood mm. of being able to predict the future, right? If anyone's confident in anything, too confident in anything, don't see that, oh, wow, they're super high conviction. Wow, that I must follow them. That must be really smart. I will say humbly, that's complete BS. Um, the, more conviction, the more conviction they have past a certain level, frankly, the less they're allowing for things to happen that they either don't foresee or haven't given enough weight to. I think it's really dangerous. So all of that said, Kogan's still in my largest position. I haven't sold a share. I don't remember when I last bought shares. <clears throat> it might have been since $11. I can't remember. Um, it's still a buy for us at Share Advisor. It's one of our best buys now. In the past, it probably will be again. Um, I don't see any reason to think the long term. They've now got more than 4 million customers as of their announcement that came out on Thursday morning. Uh, or in their email list anyway. I, I don't see any reason to believe that the Kogan case is any less attractive than it was or the potential is any lower than it used to be. The market disagrees with me. The market could be right. Just because the shares fall, I know, and this is what we talked about before, Andrew, today, I think we talked about it on Friday. Shares fall and so we worry. What's the market know that I don't? Uh, you know, what's it seeing? All that kind of stuff. Uh, I, you know, be, be mindful. You talk about dollar cost averaging. If you don't have enough confidence in Kogan, don't add to it if you're not, if you're not super confident or if you've got enough of it already. I can't use personal advice, Dan, but as a general piece of advice, I love dollar cost averaging, but would I... If I had 25% of my portfolio on Kogan, I wouldn't buy another share despite that. I have a large position in corporate travel management. I, at $5, $6, I thought, man, this is cheap. But also I thought, well, I've already got a large position. It's really cheap. It wasn't. It's gone up fourfold since. But if I was wrong and if I was adding money and, and unreasonably imbalancing my portfolio by that action, would that be smart? No, it wouldn't. So I was right. It cost me money not, not following it, but it was the right thing to do portfolio-wise. So if, if you've got enough of it or any company, um, don't buy more just because it's cheaper because uh, that would be a silly thing to do. Uh, but I still like Kogan. I have bought more, I don't know how long ago, mate, months ago probably. Um, if I didn't have an, if I didn't have enough, I would, would probably be buying at the moment. But again, I'm saying this on Thursday morning, anything could happen between now and Friday and then anything could happen between now and Sunday or then and Sunday. So, you know, for all I know, it's worth $5 or $10 by then. Uh, I see no reason at all to be dissuaded from the long-term potential I thought I saw in the business. I hope I'm not just kind of, you know, um, sticking to my guns and, and, and kind of doubling down on error. I could absolutely be. Um, but I like the growth story. I think there's every likelihood it has a larger share of a larger market over time. And I think particularly at the current price, but it's still at $11, I think I think this is a business worth meaningfully more than 11 bucks. personally. Could be wrong. But that, that was my view then. It remains my view now. Um, if and when the market agrees with me and or Kogan starts to put in better results, then we'll see a better outcome. But I see no reason to change my view on that. Thoughts on Kogan, mate, or Adairs or anything else we haven't talked about already? Uh, yeah, look, so it's not – I think I, when we last talked to my, – my comment was I kind of – I feel as though 
a lot of what you say is true. I think things got pretty silly there for a while around $20 mm-hmm. as what we've sort of touched on, on on Friday. It's sort of like, yeah, it's got a decent future, but geez, a lot was sort of priced in sort of there. And I think I sort of said things were starting to get more interesting. Well, they're even mm-hmm. more interesting now. Um <laughs> But it's, I guess, yeah. I I don't own shares. I and and I probably won't at this point. And and let me be clear on it. It's not because I have any firm negative view on it. Mm. It's just because, like most companies, I look at it kind of ends up in this bit of a too hard basket. Mm. And as I'm fond of saying, hope is not an investment strategy for me. You obviously understand the business far, 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 far better than me. So I I really respect that view. And I think if that view is proven even half correct, people do very well from here. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a tough one for me. I, I do worry about longer term margins and the competition of, of places like yeah. Amazon, uh, yeah, et cetera. Sure. But you know, you yeah. can, you can sort of wash all of that in. The one thing that's interesting with Kogan is, as you said, I've just had a very quick look at the results that were out on Thursday morning there. So mm. 10% growth in, in customers, gross sales up 9% year on year. I mean, if you weren't your gross profit's been knocked around by supply chain interruptions and COVID and all of that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. And so you could probably put that down to transient kind of uh, factors. And there's, 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 there's probably going to be a point where this becomes a bit of a, a no brainer, but yeah, I, I just, I just sort of put some of the other interesting points out there for, for consideration. Um, yeah, I think that's right. If you want a retailer, uh, yeah, one that I do own, the only one that I own, in fact, is Adairs. It's a relatively small position, but I feel as though that's that's quite interesting. Yeah, nice. I like that. Uh, worth adding too, by the way. And and think about the market, the market price. Uh, I looked at the Kogan shares that we were recording on Thursday morning. When the market opened, Kogan was down 10% on that announcement, Andrew. Oh. Uh, now down 2.3% or uh, okay. was five minutes ago. Um, go, go, yeah, the, the volatility there. I just, it's just worth reminding people that you know, um, it, it, we didn't mention actually on Friday. Just to finish off, the S and P five hundred was down at one point on Monday night our time. I think it was uh, down more than four percent, and it closed up zero point three percent on that day. This is the entire U.S. stock market swung four point three percent in a single day. Probably the biggest intraday move or third biggest intraday move in history, or something stupid. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna say outright. If you think the market is there to inform you <laughs> that somehow there people are smarter than you, better than you, know more than you, and are therefore giving you something you should take a lead from, I would just really encourage you to not to do that. And not about Kogan at all. I don't, you know, if I'm right or wrong about Kogan, so be it. Um, but you know, when when the literally the largest stock market in the world, sixty percent of the world's equity markets, swings four point three percent in a single day because the lemmings run from one side of the ship to the other side of the ship, making it kind of go backwards and forwards. How's that for mixed metaphors, by the way? Lemmings go off cliffs, but work with me here. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that it, it, you know, just, I know when people say, oh, the market's up this, oh, wow, I must be richer or poorer, or uh, you know, they must be telling something, they must know something I don't. Trust me when I say, when, when a market, entire market the size of the US market swings 4.3% in a day, from massive losses to slight gains in a six and a half hour trading period, you should absolutely look at that and think what you're hopefully thinking right now, which is, man, those people are idiots. And not they're stupid. Just don't, they're not, you know, they're no more, frankly, they're no more sensible and they're probably a whole lot less sensible and, and calm and emotionally contained than you or I. So just just be careful when you think about market volatility as we go into the next week or two, next month or two, next year or two. Um, just remember not to take that, you know, the market's supposed to be efficient, it's supposed to know things really, you know, smart people get paid stupid amounts of money to try and be right on this sort of stuff. Um, they are wrong way more often than they would ever admit uh, and more often than they should be and more often than 
deserves your attention and faith and slavish following. So just, you know, separate separate the market gyrations Let, from we, the real values. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have to go. But one, one closing comment. I'll, I'll go because I know you've followed this for years. I remember back in 2018, Kogan was about 10 bucks or almost at 10 bucks. And I didn't, I didn't like it then. Um, and again, when I say I didn't like it, it's just it was more of an opportunity cost thing. I liked other things yeah, better. Sure. But, but anyway, any, from from 2018, <laughs> it dropped back to like two bucks something a share. I felt pretty mm-hmm. smug, you know. And then it actually took <laughs> it actually took two years before it got back to ten bucks, you know. And then it went to twenty five. And and so it's yeah. kind of like it's it's interesting, isn't it? You can choose your context, choose your and choose your six. Yeah, that's right. That's you know right. what I mean? And yeah, and then yeah, back yeah, back yeah. at six. It just it, it's sort <laughs> of there's there's uh, whatever happens in the mm. future with Kogan. Just and I'm, this is more just for illustrative purposes because this is this is um, uh, in, informing of what mm-hmm. what all kind of stocks sort of do is that mm. you could say that anyone really between sort of. Uh, who were buying in 2018 at $10 a share, although they had a really rough ride, a couple of years later they yeah. would they doubled their money and then some. In that's fact, true. more if they'd been dollar cost averaging. Now, again, that's coming yeah, back that's down that's again, that's again that's but yeah. it's, a, it's yeah, that yeah, point yeah. worth making. Was it wrong then yeah. or, 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 you know, in 2018? Was it wrong in mm-hmm. 2021? Is it wrong now? I mean, it's it's it can't. They can't all be right, mm-hmm. and that's your job as an investor to exactly. sort of say right. at yeah. which point yeah. is yeah. it right. And and you know your your cases, which are articulately put, articulately. I don't know if that's a word. Um, yes, now. Uh, uh, is is that this is one of those periods? This could be mm-hmm. late twenty eighteen in 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 that example, um, or not. But that, that's that's the question you've got to ask. Yep, beautifully put, mate. I love it. And that is a wonderful way for us to finish off the podcast. We see you next Friday. You bet. Look forward to it. See you then. Until then. Full on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services licence 400691. Listener.